Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining with us in today's presentation. We're going to continue with our series entitled, The Problems of God Answering Skeptic Challenges to Christianity. The series is based in part, with permission, on the book with the same title by Mark Clark, former atheist. In this series, we're going to continue to investigate specific problems that deal directly with questions about Christianity itself from a thoughtful perspective. Today's message or presentation is based on problems that science may present towards Christianity. It is also fair for me to announce to you next week's title, which is Problems with the Existence of God. The reason why I'm combining them both together is because they're both dealing with concepts relating to God's existence and the tangible universe in which we live in. So really what we're looking at is a part one and part two series because both titles are actually intertwined with each other and there will be moments where there will be overlaps and perhaps sometimes repeated with a different angle or twist. The real question that we want to bring to you again is a synopsis of both ideas. Does God actually really exist and does science actually prove a problem to that question? And if God actually really does exist, is he someone that is personable? Is there life after death? And if he does exist, what is the implications and the impact on my view of myself, my purpose, my values, and my concept of reality? The enormity of this question is only matched by the actual importance of its findings. Once when Dr. Collins, PhD, uh, Frank, sorry, Dr. Frank Collins, PhD, who was head of the Human Genome Project, when once asked this question, commented in these terms, that I have arrived at a question to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I have arrived there without ever looking at the evidence. And I'm supposed to be a scientist. It is such an important question that many times we don't actually take it really seriously. If you're joining us today, you're unsure about this question, or maybe you're an atheist, or maybe you're just a skeptic. I want to actually warmly welcome you here on a personal note. The presentation today is meant to not give it an emotional appeal. It is meant only to speak to the facts. In fact, I don't think it's my job in any way, shape, or form to do any proof of any sort of way or try to convince you of anything. My only job is really to bring before you a reasonable explanation in answering the question that's in front of us. I'm really hoping, actually, that this opens up a door of dialogue. I want you to know that you feel safe if you want to reach out to me later on because if you have questions or perhaps rebuttals, it is okay to disagree. I'd be sorely disappointed if I don't make a few new friends throughout the process of this discussion. So let us begin. Does science prove a problem for Christianity? Well, if you look at popular opinion, the answer would be quickly in a resounding yes. After all, science is based on evidence. Faith is based on wishful thinking. Science is objective and faith is subjective. Science is progressive and forward thinking, and that's true. And yet, many think that faith is regressive and looking back. Science 
is about a discovery of the truth and faith is holding on to myths and false assumptions. Is this actually true? Is science really opposed to Christianity? Clark, in his book, actually addresses the apparent dichotomy between the two, and he addresses it in this term, is there really just science or only faith can exist? Or is it possible that it can be both at the same time? Do they work against each other, or do they in fact actually complement each other? Yes, science has debunked many myths that we have seen in the past relating to ancient religions. For instance, let's consider the sun. It was thought by the Greeks that the god Apollo rode a fiery chariot across the sky to describe the movement of the sun across the sky. And once it has set that he would be ushered back on a sea underneath the earth on a golden bolt, only at the nick of time to find the flaming chariot and mount his fiery steed to usher in the morning. Science has taught us that that is not the case. We know that the earth actually rotates at approximately 23 degrees in the perpendicular line to its rotation around the earth, or its rotation around the sun. And as it spins, it brings us into the sunlight and then spins us into the shade of the earth's own reflection from the sun. And therefore we have our cycles of night and day. It has nothing to do with Apollo and his fiery horses. How about lightning? Where does that come from? Well, is it possible that lightning is the weapon of choice for Zeus, the head god of Greek mythology? Or is lightning produced by Tan Mu, female divinity of Chinese legend, who allegedly would rub two mirrors together to create the fantastic spark of light that we call lightning? Or is it possibly too that the Norse god of thunder, yes, Thor, really produces lightning by swinging his mighty hammer. I know for some of you Avenger fans, you might be disappointed to find out that all of them, including Thor, are not true. Rather, through scientific discovery, we understand that lightning is a discharging to potential energy potentials that produces a current stream that is super hot and supercharged in a gas form known as plasma or commonly known as lightning. Yes, science has done a lot to lift the myths that we've had in our cultures in the past, but that does not say that it has disproved the question that we have before us today, the existence of God. Therefore, the apparent struggle between God's existence and science doesn't really exist. What you need to hear is these words. Rather, it is a predetermined positions injected into this conversation by secularist and resolute atheistic world views. It's not a question of science, but how some people interpret the results of science. Richard, Dark, uh, Richard Dawkins, emirate and fellow of Oxford and profound and well-known atheist said this, faith is like a mental illness, a great cop-out. And a doctor and great atheist again, Sam Harris, alludes to the very similar notion that those that have faith 
are people who are akin to being mad, disillusional, and, and also uh, psychotic. It's interesting point of view. How are the claims of Christianity measure up to an argument like that? Is Christianity truly irrational? Or does it stand on more supportive ground of being more rational compared to our Darwinian theory? Now, Darwinian theory is ultimately the great hope of the secularist opinion. And is it true that Darwinian theory, theory is actually impervious to any questions? Is there any doubt that can be measured against Darwinian theory? Many people would say it isn't, but in fact, there are many questionable doubts directly accusing towards the possibility that Darwinian theory can be true. First of all, we have the fossil records. It is true that most of our DNA, about 98% of it, is replicated in many other mammals, which might give an indication that we may, in fact, actually be coming from a common ancestor. That is legitimate, and that's a fair assumption to be made. But if that assumption is in fact true, it should be supported in other aspects of the scientific community, such as the evidence that we find underneath us. The deeper we dig into the Earth, the deeper we dig into Earth's history. It would apparently be clear that if we would do so, we'd be able to find all the connections relating to Darwinian theory where so much diversity of human or of life would be able to funnel itself down to single organisms and multiple steps of subspecies along the way. After 150 years of digging, it is clear that this evidence is sorely missing. Listen to this. Harvard paleontologist and atheist Stephen J. Gold admits the extreme rarity of transitional forms in fossil records persists as a trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary tree that adorns our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes and not at their branches. The rest is inference or just simply speculative. Darwin himself cites the holes as the most obvious and gravest objection which can be argued against his theory. Other things that bring the theory of evolution into question is that it cannot be properly modeled mathematically in algorithms. They just simply don't hold up. And then there is laboratory evidence. It's hard to find, if any, anything that would actually give any proof to macro evolution. There's microevolution. We can see that even if you have plants growing in the shade versus them growing in the sunlight there's a slight difference in the color of the leaves, and that's considered microevolution, and that's fair. But macroevolution, where we're having to jump between species or species branching off into many other species, that just is simply not replicated in a laboratory experiment. One scientist I read said, for us to get to that kind of evidence, we need to have a laboratory as large as the Earth with trillions of test tubes, and then, maybe then, we can find that evidence. It was said so in an affirmative manner. However, this is clearly not true science because we'll never get a lab quite that big. Also, when it comes down to the very origins of life, Darwinian theory cannot answer the question of where life's origins are. And it creates a sense of despotism in the world of those who hold to such a theory. 
Richard Dawkins again said, even if the evidence did not favor evolution, it would still be the best theory available. That statement is actually concerning because what he's saying there is something that is not scientific or truly based on reason because there are other reasonable explanations, but he prefers not to see them. What we're seeing is, is perhaps an opinion being derived instead of actual something that is logically clear and fair and reasonable. Frank Crick, Nobel Prize winner and co-discoverer of DNA Helix, is also a noted atheist who believed that life was seeded on Earth by aliens. In one of the last interviews with the late Stephen Hawkins, he admitted to his audience that he didn't believe in God, but instead that he believed that alien life is out there. It's a matter of perspective that is being shared and it does not really truly answer the question of life's origin. One last uh, concern that we have with evolution that we can share with you is that if you follow logically the sequence of what evolution teaches, truth is unknowable. Because if you are descended from lower forms of life, other animals, and the most important thing is survival, the importance of reasoning and understanding of finding truth just isn't going to be something that's going to be propagated to higher species. And this was a great concern for Darwin himself when he pens, Within me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. As a result, Darwin's theory itself, being the conviction of a man's mind, and thus, by his own logic, he can't trust his opinion. This is important. These are significant issues that we have with evolution. But there are other ones as well. The theory that we have about the Big Bang, that it started spontaneously. It is clear that everyone agrees that the universe, for the most part, had a beginning. And we'll talk about the most part in a moment. But for the universe to start spontaneously, there are a couple of precursors that must exist. You must remember that when everything started, there really was no such thing as time or space, or even technically energy and matter. It was everything compressed into an infinitesimally small space, and it doesn't really define anything. So if there is no time for the universe to spontaneously start, when did it have the time to start? This is a significant problem. And it's not the only precursor, it's also the physical laws, the, the dynamics that actually govern our universe are finely tuned elements that have to be strictly adhered to for us to actually have a stable universe. It is clear that these laws have to pre-exist before the universe began. This is admittedly a challenge of atheists, and Richard Dawkins is committed and actually admitted to this statement, physics does not have its own Darwin. I've come across material about another theory that probably can hybridize the former concept that the universe was infinite in its time and the Big Bang Theory where it actually have an expanding universe. And it actually came from Stephen Hawkins in a theory that he developed 
that was a no-bounds theory. What he's stating in this theory that he developed in 1983 is that if you go back in time, as the universe gets smaller, as it's re reversed the expansion process, at some point, time itself will stop. But the universe still exists behind this invisible wall of time. So that space, matter, and energy can exist as a precursor to time. It's a theory that has a lot, of a lot of flaws in it, and to the best of my understanding, isn't widely accepted. But it is definitely, it would seem to be, an attempt to try to answer these precursor questions. What is going on? Why is atheism propagating scientific evidence for evolution when it is riddled with so many discernible and easy discernible pitfalls? And how can they claim that therefore that science stands opposed to God's existence when the burden of evidence for evolution is sorely lacking solidity. What is really going on with that? Is this really a question of science? No, it's not. Really the question is, is a paradigm. What is a paradigm? A paradigm is something that we all have. It's a construct from which we filter all the information and inputs and experiences that we have and reinterpret it to reestablish what we consider our values, what's true, what's reality, what's right, and what's wrong. So if you actually change your paradigm, you're literally changing how you think and how you view information. If you have a view such as that would be different than mine, then you, what you have is a different world view because it comes out with a different set of conclusions and we all have them, and it seems a little dangerous because it deals with the concept of what is truth and what is reality. If we get our paradigm wrong, then we're living in a bubble and living in a dream, whatever that might be. That it could be possibly true for us who are theists and atheists and everywhere in between. After all, atheists believe there is no God. So they choose to view information in a way that attempts to support the favorite view of reality that they have. Now please listen to this excerpt, and I want you to listen to this carefully because it really pins it down for us very well. Harvard University biologist Richard Lewitton wrote an article published in the New York Review of Books in which he admitted that he and the scientists with whom he worked prefer natural and atheistic explanations for everything they studied. Reason he prefers such explanations for things, he said, is because he and the scientific community, now listen to this, have a prior commitment to materialism. It is not that the method and the institutions of science, however, compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomena of the world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priority adherent to material causes, and he continues on to say, we cannot allow a divine foot into the door. End of quote. There is a world of difference between the problem of science and the problem of worldviews that interpret information. It is the polarizing effect of how we have different opinions politically and in every other way. But when you're dealing with the concepts of ultimate reality, 
it becomes a very heavy and burdensome question. Off to the side quickly, the Christian worldview has always supported science, by the way. It's not opposed to it. Elvin Pennigan, philosopher, penned in his book, The Things That We Presently Call Modern Science Was Actually Conceived and Born and Flourished in the Matrix of Christian Theism. Mark Clark continues with these words, Christian theology was the garden of which modern society, modern science, I'm sorry, grew. That's not to say that other cultures have not done scientific discovery and advancement. The Mesopotamian, peoples in India and China and Egypt and Greece and Rome have all contributed to our greater understanding as humans about the natural world in which we live in. However, it is within the context of the Christian model of how we understand the universe that it actually created a framework in which we now have our experimental enterprise known as modern science. Consider the advancements that have happened in the Western Christian world in physics, astronomy, biology, chemistry, general relativity, quantum mechanics, nuclear physics, computing, rocket propulsion, medicine, power, and engineering, just to name a few. And consider some of the greatest halls of learning in the world. Many of them have cornerstones dedicated to God and the advancement of knowledge. Examples include Cambridge, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, and Brown, just to name a few. And the renowned Mayo Clinic that everyone respects so greatly as a research hospital was first founded on Christian principles and the value of human life. Christianity doesn't have a problem with science and vice versa. But if we're going to be completely honest and, and given examples of conversation here that can be actual rational and reasonable, we need to be abundantly clear that science does not disprove or prove God's existence. In fact, Science is quite neutral on the topic all the way around. It's really hard to say that science can actually be completely for God or completely against God, and that's true, and here's the reasons why. Science is dealing with the natural world. Everything that we see, light, matter, gravity, space, time, it's dealing with all the things that we can see, touch, taste, and feel, and so on. But God is not made of the stuff of this universe, and as such, it's outside of the bounds of scientific measurement. That doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. It just means that science can't prove that he exists or disprove him. In fact, science doesn't prove or disprove anything. That is not the job of science. Science's job actually is to bring to light facts that can be measured, quantified, and observed in a controlled ex experiment that can be replicated and then give possible explanations as to why we see things as we do. When I was in the University of Alberta years ago and taking a class in organic chemistry, one of the most influential teachers that I've ever had in my life was Dr. Stryker. And he was utterly brilliant. And I believe I've mentioned this before in the past, and I can't help but reflect with a smile on my face. He had a way of taking difficult subject matters and make it easy for me to understand. That's the kind of man 
that he was. And one of those things that he helped me understand, and as a class, he says that science really is only trying to tell a story. That's what science is. It's trying to tell a story to make sense of all that we see and discover in the natural world. And the story is never ever stated in such absolutes that it will exclude new information that may require that story to be changed. Science should use then the term evidence instead of the word proof. When we use the word proof in science, it's a term that cannot be used, not in pure science. Why? Science doesn't prove anything. However, science can and does provide evidence in favor of or against a particular idea. One must always handle evidence with an open mind and avoid an errant opinion. And that could never mean more in dealing with this question of ultimate reality. Though science cannot prove or disprove God, is it possible that science can give us evidence or against God's existence? Does science give us any helpful clues? This is going to be reiterated again next week, but I just want to touch on a few points now just because I can't help myself and I'm having fun now. The first evidence is a fine-tuned universe. No one anywhere will exclude the fact that the, that the universe is a beautifully balanced construct. It really is. I don't think there's anyone out there who would disagree with that. And here is part of the reasons why the universe exists. It's so fine-tuned and it's so precise that if any of its measurements and the governing laws and dynamics that govern it, if they're off by any infinitesimal amount, the universe in some way as we understand it, or at least the universe that can support life, simply can't exist. There are many laws, and I'm only going to repeat four of them for you. One of them is something called the strong nuclear force. The strong nuclear force is actually a subatomic fundamental particle. It's a, it's a fundamental particle, which is in fact uh, something that binds together protons and neutrons together in the nucleus. It is the force that allows them to sort of glue themselves together. If that force was too strong, the all you would have in the universe would be anything but hydrogen. And if it were too weak, the universe would be full 100% of hydrogen, which would make life obsolete in both cases. Gravity, we don't need to explain. If it were too strong, stars would burn too hot. And if they were too weak, then stars would not be hot enough to make heavy elements such as iron. Another one that I find dazzling is the ratio of number of electrons and protons in the universe. Listen to this. Unless the number of electrons is equivalent to the number of protons in an accuracy of one part to a number to the 37th power or better, it will not cease to exist as we know it. This is an incredible statement. Can you imagine the odds, the precision that's required? We oftentimes say about, oh, how the Earth is such a uniquely positioned in our solar system to support life and water and the magnetic field and all these things and the exact position of the moon and even where Jupiter is in relation to actually creating a defensive shield to asteroids for us. All these things help to support life and they are amazing in themselves. But when you look at these physical laws, it's not just the Earth's relation to the sun. It's 
every atom and every electron in the universe has to be exactly the way it is to allow life on Earth to exist. And this is profound. The expansion rate of the universe, this is also good. If the rate of the expansion of one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 1,000 million millionths, the universe would have recollapsed on itself and we would not be here. The odds of us actually being here, that life in a universe can be supported, defy the odds of the actual count of atoms in the entire universe. What are the ramifications of this? What does the evidence point to? Is it possible that these evidences support an impressive design model of engineering that we see with the fine-tuning? Does it make sense that the fine-tuned universe has an intelligible mind behind it? What does the evidence say? Einstein begrudgingly had to admit that in his own theory, he had to conclude that the universe had a beginning, and he said these words, the presence of a superior reasoning power must be at play. That is dealing with a fine-tuned universe, but what about the complexity of life? Let's just look at simple proteins. You all have proteins in your body, and we always think about it in the sense of something that it builds muscle, and of course it does, but it is actually a key component in all aspects of working functions in the human cells of your body and anything else for that matter. What proteins really are, are ch is a series of amino acids, there's 21 of them, and how they sequence themselves together in a long chain is what makes up a protein. And of course, there's almost an infinite number of possibilities how these amino acids can form. And once they form fully, the whole apparatus stops being a string and actually folds in on itself and makes a very unique form to do a specific function in a living cell, whether it might be waste management or transport or defense or self-repair, and on and on it goes. The proteins do the work and function that allow the cell to live. Now, the average cell, the average protein length, whatever that is, I don't have that number with me, is extremely big at, at any cost. And for that to be actually happening randomly, coming together in a sequence perfectly, the odds for that to happen are in a magnitude of more than 450. That means it's a number that has about 450 zeros in it. That's the odds of a single average protein coming together on its own. And in the smallest of all forms of life, in simple single cell living creatures, they have an average of about 600 proteins. Now listen to this. For a single cell organism to randomly come together and exist, giving it 20 billion years in ideal conditions for life, the odds of occurrence for it to occur is in the magnitude of 99,999,999,873 zeros. It's hard to even imagine a number that big. Consider this, that the highest estimates of the number of atoms in the universe is a number that has 112 digits in it. This is approaching 100 billion. How can you even conceptually understand a number that large? 
If you were to write out a hundred billion numbers, every second putting down another digit, every time you do it every second, that number grows by a magnitude of 10. For you to complete that number, longhand will take 3,168 years. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, every second without stopping. It's even hard to even understand the size of the number, let alone what the quantity is involved with it. To a person who does not feel obligated to restrict their search to an intelligent cause, the straightforward conclusion is that many biological systems were designed by Michael Bowen. If you think that uh, protein is interesting, consider DNA. When it comes for it to happen really randomly, there really isn't any effective computer modeling that can calculate it for us. The human DNA has more than 6.4 million base pairs or letters and has enough readable information to fill 4,000 books. DNA is language, code, program, information, instructions. DNA communicates intelligible biometric engineering schematics of you and I. And it's only in the last 20 years or so that we've actually been able to map it out and to begin understanding in its full scope what it is, this language. Francis Cullen stated that DNA is the language of God. Consider what Carl Sagan said, who was involved in the um, pioneer missions in NASA and investigating the outer limits of, the of our galaxy, said this, a single message from space is enough for us to conclude there's intelligent being. All we have to do is look at just what's inside one of our living cells. And to kind of bring it home and move away from science in a way, because it's so dizzying, the numbers and the concepts that we share are so heavy sometimes, maybe let's just bring it down to a more simplified manner. I love games, and I actually like word games a lot, which means I really like Scrabble. I love playing Scrabble. If you ever want to play a game of Scrabble, give me a call. Awesome game. Now, if I had a box full of Scrabble letters, those little wooden letters, and I were walking across the floor, and for some reason I trip, and all those letters go flying all over the place, it is fair to say that you can probably estimate that half of those letters are going to fall upside down, the other half will be right side up, but they probably aren't going to be in a straight line. They will be organized in all manners across a 360 degree spectrum of a circle. Some of them might even be on top of each other. And you're probably going to have to use a lot of your imagination to actually able to piece some of those words together to fall randomly on the ground to even make a two word or three letter, letter, or two letter or three letter word. That's just how things go. When you would look at that, you would say that's an accident. Conversely, on the other side, I have a different story. Uh, my father passed away many years ago, and my mother eventually remarried a wonderful man named Harry, and he's a great guy. In fact, to this day, I affectionately give him the honorable title, Dad. He's that good of a guy. And he also apparently is allegedly quite a romantic. My mom told me a story some years ago on Valentine's Day where she happened to come across on her floor in her bedroom something that had been there. It was placed there, had fallen there. She discovered it. And what she found was approximately 150 of these red uh, heart-shaped chocolates 
maybe about three centimeters in, in size, and they were perfectly symmetrically organized in the shape of a Valentine's heart. And inside were inscribed the letters E plus H, presumably meaning Erica plus Harry, my mother's name and my stepdad's name. Now, when my mother came across that, she didn't say to herself, wow, what a unique random coincidence that that would fall on the ground and organize itself like that. Clearly, you can see that there was intelligent intent behind it. She can't actually prove that Harry actually placed that on the floor because she didn't see him do it. There were no other eyewitnesses and there was nothing else that could measure him actually in the account of doing it. But she saw the evidence that he actually did in fact place something on the ground and it would seem that the evidence of science would bear that Harry is in fact a fairly romantic guy. Consider this, in light of all the evidence that we've looked at, is it true that God has communicated to us intelligently through the physical world? Romans 1.20 says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen by understanding from what has been made, so that man is without excuse. John Lennox, like Richard Dawkins, the famed atheist, also is an emirate professor of the same University of Oxford. John is a mathematician and a philosopher of science, but unlike Dawkins, he is a theist. In an article that he wrote, Beyond Reason, on a website known as longaria.org, he pens in that article five things that I can pull out that seem to be important and relevant to our conversation. First of all, the rational intelligibility of the universe points to a mind. Second, the fine-tuning of the general universe, and particularly our planet, would seem to suggest that we are meant to be here. Third, science evidence points to a creative mind. However, we don't know what that is, or who it is, or what our purpose is, only through the lens of science. Four, to discover this answer, we need to look beyond the physical evidence, time, space, energy, and matter, because God is not made of the stuff of the universe. We find in Genesis some helpful hints in who this great mind might be. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In a far more clear manner, we find these words in John chapter 1. Please listen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. In the original Greek, in which the book of John was written many, many years ago, the word that is emphasized in capital actually is translated to mean logos. The Greek language has three notable descriptive methods in which one can convey a position or opinion in an argument setting. And here is the first one. The first one is pathos. To 
give a convincing appeal on an emotional grounds. I feel uncomfortable with would be a pathos sort of appeal. Athos or ethos, I should say, is an argument presented on ethical appeal based on concepts of fairness and justice between what is right and wrong. And then there is logos. This is an appeal of logic. The word, as we have it in John chapter 1, literally means logic. Greek philosophers would refer to logos as a term to describe the rational principle that governs the universe. And now we have a theological explanation behind a rational, intelligible universe filled with fine-tuning and the complexity of, hum of all life in the universe. It is a product of a mind, the divine logos, the word. And the logos isn't some vague concept, an abstract being. It is the creator himself, a person. And if the ultimate reality behind the universe is a personal God, then the implications are profound in how we address the whole question of what is truth. We can reveal ourselves to each other in communication by sharing our thoughts, our views, our opinions, our feelings in a far greater way than any scientific method could ever tell us about each other. That's because we are persons and we're uniquely equipped to know each other. If God is in fact a person, does he actually speak to us personally? We see the evidence as it would be the fingerprints of language in our DNA, but it doesn't really tell us much about him or his attitude towards us. Does he actually reveal himself to you and me on a first name basis? John chapter 1, 4 says this, the word, that is the eternal logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This unseen mind behind the origins of the universe became one of us, not only to communicate with us, but to share our humanity and live with us, to share our mortality, our joys, our griefs, and our sufferings. When we see the Logos, when he has come, he has entered our frame to win us back to himself. This is the purpose why he came. The coming of Jesus Christ into the world is God's visitation with mankind. God came in Christ to take the impediment of our moral failings away because he loves us and wants us to be with him. In Romans 3 it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can stand perfect in front of a God of absolute perfection. And the evidence of that we can see obviously and clearly in what he has made it goes further than that into his character and into his heart and his mind. It's a perfection to which we cannot touch and have a hope of actually incurring favor with him or audience with him because he's too perfect. 
But it says this in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And I love this, Titus 1.2, It is the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Is it really that remarkable to consider the one who transcends time and space that he in his foreknowledge was thinking about you before you ever had been? It says in the Bible that his thoughts for you outnumber the sands of the seashore. I think we can take that literally. If he is an infinite mind, that can't be a problem for him. He is intensely concerned about you as a human being. Indeed, the evidence points to a divine mind. The mind is revealed again in the person of Jesus, who came into the world through immaculate inception, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for us in our place for our sins, was raised from the dead to give us the opportunity that we can have eternal life with him and be with him forever. God really is a person who wants to know you, and the evidence that we have in the natural world is fine-tuning the communication and intelligence that it conveys shows a fingerprint of someone of great thinking and is personable. Revelations 3.20 says this, Here I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and weep with that person and they with me. God is in fact interested in you if he actually exists. Does he exist? I don't think we're finding really an argument in sciences in the natural world that would oppose that idea. In fact, he's personable and we can have him in our lives. All I have to do is change my paradigm a bit to shift the evidence from which we see. The Bible calls that to believe. It's a shift in your paradigm. It also requires us also to open the door. It literally means that we can open our lives to him by simply saying, Lord, I want you in my life. Forgive me of my sins and come into my life. I want to have this friendship with you. If you really are the mind behind the universe and you are that involved and want to know me, then I want you to be in my life and may I actually have that understanding on a first-hand basis. All we have to do is ask him. Yes, he can hear us when we talk to him, obviously. And if that's in your mind and you want to say, yeah, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to move forward in this direction. I want you to join with me in prayer in a conversation that we can have with God. And if you agree with me and let it be your prayer and your thoughts and your intentions, then you will have the opportunity of inviting Jesus into your heart. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you're here. I thank you, Lord, for the evidence that we have in the universe of your existence, Lord. And that science is a complement, Lord, of who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us. And Lord, if we are in a position that we want to give our hearts to you, Lord, we want to say, Lord, we want to change our paradigm. I believe in you. Lord, take the imperfections that I have and remove them so I can know the ultimate perfection and reality, which is you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Find me where I am.
and let me be known by you and know you not only for this life, but for all eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. It's as simple as that. If you've done that in your heart, congratulations. You have now begun your journey of a personal relationship with the God of a great mind, the great Logos, the Word. And if you've done so, please don't keep it to yourself. Tell someone. In fact, on the bottom of the screen in front of you right now is a number. Just text Jesus and let us know that you've done that. And for some of you, you're probably still sitting in a position of skepticism and haven't done anything. I want to tell you something. I am totally fine with that. And I think that's only fair. It's a lot to absorb at once. But if there is any opportunity that you would like to have in contacting me personally about this, I would encourage you to do so. I am looking for the opportunity of having exchanges with those who are interested to talk about any aspect of anything that we have. I'm still on my learning curve too, and I'm willing to be challenged in any kind of healthy dialogue with anyone. And if you want to do so, please message uh, me directly by sending a message in the Eaglemont Christian Church website and just address it that you just want to speak to Harvey, and that would be sufficient enough. Thank you so much for joining us. God bless you, and have a great week.